The content of this podcast should not be considered financial or investment advice. All interviews and discussions are opinions only, and the podcast has been created without taking into consideration the listener's financial objectives, financial situation, or needs. Listeners should obtain independent advice before making any financial decisions. This is Barry Fitzgerald, Garen Perrow columnist for StockEd. Welcome to another edition of the Explorers podcast. Today we're catching up with Arafura Resources. It trades under the code ARU or Alpha Romeo Uniform and is trading at 36 cents for a market cap of about 565 million. Now I'll just mention there that back in January 2020 when we caught up with Arafura, the company was trading at about 8 cents for a market cap of 83 million. Mind you, at the same time, Linus Corp was trading at about $1.76 billion. So Linus is now an $8 billion company. So from all that, we can gather that something is going on big time in the rare earth space. And Arafura, of course, through its Nolans project, about 125 k's north of Alice Springs in the Northern Territory, is poised to become Australia's uh, second rare earth producer, but uh, perhaps just as important, the only one in Australia to provide uh, separated rare earth oxides. So a very interesting story. And again, we've got Gavin Lockyer, the Managing Director, with us today to bring us up to speed with the story. And uh, I would probably start out, uh, Gavin, by welcoming you to the podcast and uh, might get you to start with what was the the kick in the share price we saw in mid-March that uh, seems to have been a, a bell to people saying Nolans is finally on its way into production. Yeah, thanks, Barry. It's great to be back, and good uh, good day to all all the uh, the listeners out there. Look, uh, I think uh, a number of things are, are going on in the critical minerals, or in our our particular case, the neodymium praseodymium market. We're seeing um, obviously some geopolitical um, issues going on in uh, in terms of limited supply being able to come out of China due to you know COVID restraints on uh, on um, magnet production. Um, which is has affected globally uh, the auto sector in particular. Um, compounding that is the uh, restriction in uh, materials now coming out of Russia, um, obviously due to the sanctions and and the conflict that's that's occurring over there. So you've got some geopolitical um, issues going on. On top of that, um, we've just got a growing market in terms of electric vehicle sales. Mm. These um, sales are growing month on month. Uh, year on year, and um, and everybody knows that um, electric vehicles require uh, you know roughly two kilograms of rare earth magnet in each one, and uh, and so there's just been a massive demand for product uh, against a backdrop of restricted supply, and and people are looking for alternatives. Arafura represents one of the very few opportunities outside of uh, China, uh, which can come online uh, in the near term in order to meet that uh, looming looming demand supply deficit. So I think it's it's really been a realisation of the market that um, that uh, there's there's only a few projects out there. Linus, as you mentioned, it was one of them. Uh, they're in production and uh, and obviously having a stellar performance in terms of market cap. And, and we're following, although albeit, albeit not so stellar, but we hope to get there very soon. Yeah. 
Now, uh, some of what you were saying there is reflected, of course, in the NDPR pricing. Notice I won't try and pronounce them. Um, of uh, US $152 a kilogram in the most recent quarter, up about 14%. Mm. I seem to remember that your uh, feasibility work you've been doing on your project, you assumed a long-term price of around US 87 a kilo. Does, is the 87 kilo still stand as a long-term projection or do you think everyone's going to have to start thinking higher prices long run? Oh, look, I think um, higher prices is, is the norm. Uh, we have since the feasibility study, which was done in February uh, 2019 and we updated it in May last year, um, we've we've had subsequent uh, third-party reports done and, and they're showing a much higher longer-term price. We'll plan to publish that alongside um, updated capital and operating costs later this year as we get towards FID. Um, but certainly $87 now seems very conservative. Mm. Interesting that uh, at the time, I think the actual spot price was around $55 US a kilogram. So having offtake discussions with, with groups uh, and us trying to put floor prices in at about $87 um was uh you know it, it almost sounded like we were dreaming but <laughs> as as we stand now we're uh we're in a pretty good good position in yeah. terms of price negotiation yeah i could just see myself at the time asking you a question aren't you being a bit optimistic with 87 a kilo there given the yes. spot price <laughs> yeah so times change now talking about times changing um there is this Government to government um, discussions around the need to supply critical metals, uh, obviously rare earths being a key part of that, where you've got Europe, uh, uh, North America, Australia being part of this response that is going on. That's coming through in quite a bit of government support for your project. So can we just run through this, the three key ones there, the uh, Modern Mining Initiative, the Export Finance NAIF um, uh, debt facility, um, and uh, the Korean government's uh, Comia, which is uh, facilitates rares to the Korean market. Can we just run through those, give mm. people a feel about how big this gov government response is to wean the world off China's grip on rare earths. Yep, you've uh, you've hit the nail on the head there. It's a, it's about the uh, the rest of the world actually identifying that it needs to find alternate supply, and this is not a a, a sinophobic argument. This is mm. simply a fact that. China will need all its own production for its own manufacturing. Um, and uh, like any any good country would do, uh, it, it will protect its own manufacturing industry ahead of others. And, and that's really all China is doing here. Um, and and even the producers in China are struggling to meet their external um, uh, supply contracts with, with current manufacturers. Um, and so the Australian government, along with many of its allies, over the last couple of years has been developing a critical mineral strategy. Um, Austrade in particular has been really um, forthright here in, in promoting Australia and, and Australian projects globally. Um, and over time, that has morphed into discussions with the Australian government itself saying, well, you know, other governments are prepared to put money in, but they'd like to see the Australian government actually putting money where its mouth is. And, mm. uh, and so it's, it's from our Afuris perspective, it's morphed into a number of those facilities that you've mentioned. The first one is the Modern Manufacturing Initiative. Um, and again, I should say, um, given we're in the middle of an election cycle, that um, uh, most of these um, uh, government um, processes have been uh, extremely bipartisan. And, uh, and that's been, I think, again, a reflection of the importance of this sector. 
But the Modern Manufacturing Initiative was a uh, is a grant that's been provided to us for up to thirty million dollars. Um, we have to spend uh, sixty million dollars to get that thirty million dollars. Uh, but the target is is that that um, is for the uh, last phase of our, our processing plant, which is the uh, rare earth separation plant. That's the part of the plant that takes all the mixed rare earth products and separates out the NDPR. Um, and it's also uh, been granted along the lines that it's um, it's modern manufacturing. So it's downstream, modern ma- uh, mm-hmm. downstream manufacturing in Australia. So it's not just dig it up and ship it out but also um, with the view that we could potentially uh, take other feedstocks from other uh, rare earth feedstocks, um, whether it be in the mineral sands um, game or just other pure rare earth plays. Mm. The second uh, second one you mentioned was Export Finance Australia and, and NAIF, and they are more longer term uh, project funding facilities, um, up to $300 million combined uh, over, over a longer tenor. It's a, it's a debt facility um, subject to a number of conditions precedent, including um, securing bankable offtakes, uh, as well as uh, looking to get fixed price EPC contracts wherever possible. And then the last one, which is, I guess, the international collaboration with uh, with Comer and the Australian uh, and sorry, the Korean government, um, whereby uh, the Korean government is trying to encourage Australian entities to uh, basically sell and uh, execute offtake agreements with Korean manufacturers, whether it be in the auto sector, in the technology sector, the electronic sector, or, or uh, just um, Korean uh, industry more widely, and 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 uh, in exchange for that, then the Korean government will step in and provide what's called untied guarantee schemes, where they will underwrite the offtake agreement such that we can then go out and uh, and raise commercial debt. So, all three of those are extremely important to our overall funding strategy. Uh-huh. And uh, in terms of funding, it is a big project, one point one billion or thereabouts. Um, FI final investment decision expected in the second half of uh, this year. Um, That's correct. What are the? I imagine you have to get through the uh, front end engineering and design phase, the project uh, funding, of course, and offtake partners. So, yep. if we can take those one by one. Where are you at? Yep, one hundred percent correct. So uh, the front end engineering design was uh, initiated uh, middle of last year, and we. Um, uh, have uh, been working on that uh, extensively um, throughout uh, end of last second half of last year, and, and it, it won't won't be completed until early Q3 this year. Um, and the target there is to get our engineering sufficiently advanced um, to enable uh, constructors to adequately tender. What we have been uh, doing, however, is um, bringing constructors into the um, discussion early. Um, We brought them in a couple of months ago, actually, to start uh, looking at a constructability review that helps um, helps basically guide the engineering to make sure that what they're designing is actually constructible. Uh, and we also hope that that will give the constructors a good understanding of the project um, and the intricacies of the project so that when we ask them for fixed price EPC kind of style contracts, that they're more informed than perhaps they otherwise would be and therefore obviously keep contingencies and, and other um variable costs uh, down in their in their in their fixed pricing 
In terms of the the funding, uh, we appointed our uh, lead uh, arranger, mandated lead arrangers last week. That was uh, Sokgen and NAB, um, two two banks that have strong metals and mining uh, backgrounds. Uh, those groups will now be helping us facilitate the overall debt sizing and um, and and bringing together the Export Finance Australia and the NAFE facilities so that we can identify the exact uh, debt to equity ratios. Uh, yeah. We have published some of that, that information um, previously. Um, <clears throat> But obviously, overall debt is required um, requires uh, clear bankable offtakes. So that's been the other key focus of of the group. Um, we've had uh, people recently uh, th- going through Korea, uh, advancing uh, discussions that we had pre-COVID. We've had uh, a team camped in uh, in Europe for a couple of weeks um, again uh, to continue discussions that we're having pre-COVID, but and continued through COVID um, in an effort to advance these um, term sheets to a more um, announceable um, offtake um, arrangement and ones that the banks can actually put their hands on and say, right, um, subject to funding, obviously um, these groups will be there to support the project uh, in terms of volumes of offtake. Um, and we're talking, you know, reasonable names here that um, are obviously um, recognisable to the everyday punter, but also are very bankable from the, uh, from the lender's perspective. Right. Okay. And uh, did I see a line in one of the in a recent presentation that you more than ten offtake partner discussions uh, accounting for two hundred and sixty percent of production planned production? Absolutely. Look, we've got um, you know we're we're spreading ourselves across jurisdictions. We've focused on those jurisdictions where we believe uh, rare earth magnets are critical to manufacturing and industry, and um, predominantly that's you know our key trading partners in uh, in Europe, Korea, Japan, and uh, and the USA. Uh, and we've also linked uh, or attempting to link those offtake contracts with um, assistance in our debt. So if it's in a jurisdiction, as I said, like Korea or Germany or Japan, where they have existing export credit agencies, where we're looking to link the offtake with uh, untied uh, loan guarantees, which uh, will assist us with the debt funding. Uh, and in jurisdictions where they they aren't uh, necessarily um, prevalent, where we're trying to seek um, some form of equity contribution from from the potential off-takers themselves, whether it be at parent level or uh, preferably at, at the project uh, project level. Mm, okay. And like the governments of the world, the end consumers of the world need to uh, start thinking about putting up to, um, well, break this nexus of uh, China's stranglehold. On the business you're absolutely right and i think we, we've we saw it with the auto sector in particular around the batteries um and and buying into lithium cobalt um graphite mm. nickel etc yeah, um, because they realize that it's not just the battery manufacturers issue now it's their issue um and so we're now hopefully in the next phase of that um, procurement supply chain strategy that um, many of these groups um, have undertaken. And hopefully that they're now, well, not hopefully, they they are looking at um, securing supply of their of their rare earths for mm. their magnets. Yeah, sure. Uh, something strategically that interests me is the um, spending the money on the rare earth separation plant, uh, 90-odd million dollars. Um, mm-hmm. Why have you gone down that pathway and not simply 
We'll do what a lot of our mining industry has done for decades, just ship off um, lower value raw materials. Look, for us, it was uh, we did we did contemplate that. Um, don't get me wrong. Um, it's much easier to, to dig it up and just ship it out. Um, the issue, I guess, we had was that um, we've got a large capital um, cost project. Uh, we felt that if we undertook that model, that um, perhaps the price that we might get from the processor and, and all of those processes um, currently reside in China might be sufficient in order to give us a modest return, but would probably never be sufficient for us to be able to raise capital on our own basis to build the, the bigger plant and the downstream processing. So that was that was one 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 reason. Um, second reason is the value add in that last um, hundred million of capital, we almost double the value of our of mm. our rare earth um, mm. product. So mm. the the MPVs improve significantly by by going down to a rare earth oxide. Um, by doing a rare earth oxide, we also offer our customers a complete outside of China supply chain. So uh, we can actually deliver our product um, to a automaker. We won't be delivering it in, in form of a magnet or a component, but mm. through their various supply chain, suppliers outside of China, we can actually provide them with a line of sight as to where that product has come from, and it will be completely outside of China. And the third part of that is is really one that's grown in in um, importance in the last 12 months. Um, it's not just the line of sight to the product that we can offer the customer, but it's line of sight around ESG. And the fact that we're doing everything in Australia, uh, a well-known jurisdiction for, for mining and, and processing, um, we have all our environmental approvals to do all of this at one site. Uh, we can... Uh, show our customer that we're operating, um, you know, in accordance with world's best practice, mm -hmm. um, both at an environmental level and operational level, and also all our wastes are managed in an, in an appropriate manner. And this is a really big selling point for for customers globally, particularly in the in the green sector where you know wind turbines and and, and electric cars. Yes, no, they're very attuned to the ESG credentials of the, the where the product's coming from. Uh, kind of makes sense, I guess, if you're in the green space that you want green supply of materials as well. Otherwise, you know, the hypocrisy will uh, be quickly found out. By, mm, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. Now, I think a good way to finish up would just would be to give investors a feel for how significant this project can be in terms of percentage of world demand, um, what sort of earnings uh, capability uh, figures you have. Uh, I know they'll be updated as we go through, but what were the mo most recent ones? Just to give people a feel for how significant this project is. Yeah, look, when in production, uh, we'll be targeting somewhere between 5 and 10% and of, of global supply at this point in time. And we're targeting production by uh, uh, start, oh, sorry, end of uh, 2025. Um, and so, you know, we think that that's, that's a really good time to be coming into production because it's around where most forecasters are saying that China will become a net importer and therefore the world will be crying out for more product. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we won't be an insignificant supplier. In terms of the um, in terms of the product itself, we have, or the mine site itself, you know, we offer longevity. We have a mine life uh, that's chalk compliant to around 38, 39 years. 
um, but we do have mineralization, and this is in the top 200 meters uh, right. vertical depth. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've got mineralization down 440 meters, so this is an extremely significant deposit. Uh, on a global scale. Um, That in turn allows us to offer so many different things for the region in which we operate. And so we are working closely with our communities um, in Central Australia around making intergenerational change in the region, but also um, working with the Australian government and the Northern Territory government about advancing the um, the modern manufacturing initiatives that we uh, you know are, are stating here that you know it's it's offering a whole range of new skill sets um, mm. for for Australians um, and so we, you know we think that's um, that's a fantastic opportunity when um, you know the MPVs and, and IRRs are all um, published on our website and um, you know we are not expecting any any significant changes there but um, what I will say is that um, post uh, capital payback which currently sits at uh, around five years the um, the EBITDA or free cash carry is is quite significant in the you know it's a couple hundred million US dollars per annum Mm. Um, so I think the economics speak for themselves in terms of long term once once investors can get their head around the the upfront big capital number that we have, um, I think if you start looking at it as as a bit of an annuity, uh, I don't think that's a bad bad way to look at at this project. Right. Okay. There we go, folks. Arafura Nolan's day has finally arrived. Um, very much plugged into the green energy revolution through the Nolan's project, which is uh, shovel ready. So watch out for those re-rating points as the year unfolds, the final investment decision and uh, getting into production around 24-25. So with that, Kevin, thanks for your time today. Exciting project. Wish you all the best with it and we'll keep in touch. Absolutely. Thanks, Barry. Thanks for your time. Cheers.